So listen, we're going through the book of Nehemiah, and we're, we're actually getting close to being finished, but I, I did something to my parents when I was staying with them in Dallas, and man, it brought back some great memories. Does anyone know that guy that whenever they pick you up in a car, and you open up the passenger door, as soon as you touch the door handle and kind of open it up, they pull up two feet? The big smile on their face, you know what I'm saying? That guy, anyone know that guy? that does that and thinks it's hysterical, right? And they go, ha, 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 get it. And you go up and you grab the doorknob again, and what do they do? They pull up another two feet, right? Because it's hysterical. I'm that guy, just so you know. I am that guy. I do think it's hysterical. I think that joke is good for at least five or six runs at a time. <laughs> I'm the dude that pushes it one time, probably too many. But I like the look on their face because you can promise them. Listen, I promise I won't do it again. Come on, we don't have time for this. I promise. Get in the car. <laughs> and then you pull up again. It's great. I love just talking about it. It's hysterical. Because there's this look on their face. It's a mixture of, we don't have time for this. And this is too childish for me. And I'm glad you're having a good time. It's all mixed on their face, you know. Bro, we don't have time for this. Come on. No, we do. We have plenty of time for this. Because this is a very funny joke. We will make time for this joke. Go ahead and come on in. I promise. I promise this time. And then they stick their foot in and you pull up again. Never gets old. So what I want to talk about today is a grander, probably a little bit more serious, cosmic version of that. Right? Um, Because whenever we do... Whenever we have sin in our life, and I'm not talking about any sin. I'm talking about the ones, the residual ones that kind of stick to us. I'm talking about the ones that you might have growth and grace in from time to time. But for every benchmark, there's a setback. It's those one or two or three or four for us that it seems to always be on the radar. right? And we're also familiar with the promising of God. God, I promise I won't do that again. And I'm super serious this time. I mean, I'm super duper serious, and I mean it this time. And I'm even more serious than I was last time I said I was real super duper serious. But now I mean it. I mean, I know I meant it last time, but now I mean it. Things are going to change from here on out, right? I know no one in here deals with that, but I do a little bit. So I'm going to go ahead and just tell you how it works from the inside out, right? At first, you really do mean it. At first, you really mean it. I mean, God exposes the sin. You see it for what it is. It's exposed. You see what it's doing to your life. You see what it's done to the people around you. You see what it's done with your relationship with God. All of this is very clear. And you see it. And you don't like it. And you really want to be closer to God. You really want to see a change. There's true resolve in you to commit, to promise, to contract, to covenant, to sign up, to vow. In fact, we're so serious, a lot of times we'll increase our discipline. We'll double down on our Bible time. Prayer time. We'll double down on attendance, right? Church attendance. These things in and of themselves are not bad, by the way. We'll even be extra vulnerable with the people we're in community with, right? We call it accountability. You call it whatever you want. We'll even be even more open. Not because we think those things are going to win us any grace or pleasure from God, because they don't. But we do it because we want to prove to God that we really are serious about it this time. We want to show Him the indignation in us by doing these things, right? But many times, not all the time, many times we find ourselves right back in the same very familiar place. We might make external promises with our mouth. From now on, things will change. I promise things will be different. I mean it this time. I want to see change. But inside, there starts to be a little bit of a hesitation or a reservation because your track record is so poor 
and you're so prone to repeat it, you kind of figure that it, it just might happen again. And after time, we're very honest with ourselves as we continue in stages. We get very honest and we say, you know what? Inside, I am a promise breaker. I'm a promise breaker. And sometimes, if it gets bad enough, and some of you have been here, you'll even say things with your mouth. Like, I promise I won't. I swear it'll change. You'll say it to your wife, your husband. You'll say it in a meeting like this with the pastor. You'll say it in the living room with other Christians. You'll say it and you'll vow it. But even though you're saying it with your mouth, you know in your heart you're not going to honor it. You know that you won't. As soon as you say it, you know you won't honor it. You know, I'm like you. And I'm constantly making, breaking, and remaking promises. Constantly doing this. It's an endless cycle. Because as Christians, we are very, very good at making promises. And as Christians, we are very, very, very good at breaking promises. That's us. And as we continue to develop this, we look a lot like Pharisees, where the outside doesn't look like the inside. Right? And we know it. Even if no one else does, we know it's inside of us. And we want to change, but we slightly expect that things are just going to stay the same, like they are. Right? This repetitive face plant over and over and over again. And so what do we do? We cope. We cut a deal. Instead of mortify the sin or put it down, we just kind of rearrange the deck furniture. Right? We just kind of cross our fingers and hope that the inner man catches up with the outer man before we're totally exposed for the promise breaker that we truly are. You guys depressed yet? I promise I won't leave you there. <laughs> I promise I won't leave you there. We find ourselves in a part of Nehemiah's story where we could truly relate with this. Okay? We've been going through, if you're new or you've only been once or twice or a few times, we've been going through the whole book of Nehemiah from very first verse to very last, and we find ourselves in chapter 10 today. We're going to do the whole chapter today, all right? Um, up until this point, if you're not familiar with the story, or just as a reminder if you are, Nehemiah is a man who left Susa, the capital of Babylon, and went to Jerusalem. He left a position of power and authority, and he came where he would be attacked from the outside and attacked from the inside in the attempt to build the walls around the city. These walls would make Jerusalem distinguished and separate and set apart as a nation among all the other nations around. Right Now this story is actually a foreshadowing of Christ who also departed from a place of high power and authority and glory and came to a place where he would be attacked from the outside and attacked from inside his own camp to get his own hands messy in a people who didn't even really want him there, a lot of them. To build up something that was also in ruins where there were people scattered spiritually, scattered geographically, to build up not physical walls but spiritual walls that said this is a distinguished, set-apart people of God for God's glory. That's what the story of Nehemiah is really about. We're at the place in the story now where the walls have been built. The physical distinction is done. Nehemiah is working on the spiritual distinction. Spiritually. How do we look different from the other nations, right? So, in this part of the story, this renovated city of rebels is revisiting and recommitting to a covenant that God had set up before them. If some of you, the word covenant might not be a very familiar word. Covenant very simply is this. It's a promise made from a greater king to a lesser people, and it has conditions to it. If you do well on the conditions, you get blessings. If you do poorly on the conditions, you get curse or punishment. You can say it that way. All right? So, 
I want to read this, Nehemiah 10, 1 through 29, um, as we get started. So what you're going to see as you open it up, you're going to see a lot of names. Those are a lot of names, aren't they? It's like 26 or something verses of names, just solid names. Yes, we're going to read them. Didn't I get the short straw last time we had names? Where are the other preachers in the house? I did, didn't I? I noticed that when I was practicing this word so I didn't look stupid in front of you. I thought, wait a minute, I did this last time. This is how it starts. On the seals, we're going to start in verse 38 of chapter 9. All of this will be up on on the screen here in a moment. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Peshur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshalam, Abijah, Mijamin. I'm doing good so far, huh? That's about all I got. That's all I got in my practice. So the rest is, we'll just see. Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests and the Levites. Yeshua, the son of Azariah, or I'm sorry, Azaniah, Benuai, the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, oh man, Hashabiah, Dad, I want to be named Jake, or Kevin, no, it'll be Hashabiah, and you will like it, Hashabiah will be your name, (laughs) Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunny, Bunny. Listen, if your name is Bunny and you're going by a nickname now, keep it that way. Don't let anyone know your real name is Bunny. Just lie. Tell everybody it's whatever it is. Especially if you're a dude. I better not find out your name is Bunny. Alright? Alright. Asgad, Babay, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshalam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilhashobek, Rehum, Hash, Habanah, I'm pretty sure I didn't do that one right, Messiah, Ahia, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bana. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles. And hear the rest of this. This is the kicker in this whole part. And enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. So, what's going on here? They're entering into a curse. What that means is, it's just fancy language for they're recommitting to this covenant that God had given them. And its terms, by the way. Now, this isn't some new covenant. This isn't brand new. This is about as cutting edge as Moses. That's when it was first given. So Moses goes up the mountain, fire and thunder and dark clouds, and he comes back down with the words of God, the law. And he teaches the people. That's a lot of Exodus, by the way. So they're receiving the law, and what is their response? We will do it. We will do what you say. As you've said it, so it seems good to us. We promise. 
But they didn't keep their promise, did they? No. They broke it. So they wander around in the desert for 40 years. 40 years later, they come back to that river right before they cross over into Canaan under the leadership of Joshua. And what do they do again? Book of Deuteronomy. They revisit the common, they revisit the law, the covenant. And they promise they're going to do it again. Joshua, just as we serve Moses, we're serving you. We're signing on the dotted line. We're serious. Well, weren't you guys serious last time? Yeah, but that was then. We're super duper serious now. But did they keep their promise? No. No, they didn't. Then the judges came about. And again, they hit the reset switch, right? Where they start over, they recommit. We're serious this time, but did they keep their promise? No, they didn't. Some of the kings came. Did they keep their promise? No. They did not. You see, Israel is really, really good at making promises, like some of you. And Israel is really, really good at breaking promises, like some of you. Not me. I'm pretty good at it. No, I'm just playing. But why is all of this important? Because if we're honest, and I mean totally honest, we are them, aren't we? We are Israel. I mean, this book, we'd like to be Nehemiah, wouldn't we? We want to be the one that comes in and leads and sets everything straight and honors God. But really, the truth in this story is we're the people that someone greater than Nehemiah came to rescue, to collect, to give us a law and actually enable us to follow it. That's who we are in this thing. This book is about how God deals with promise breakers. A lot of it. That's you and that's me. So, I want to look at just a couple things that they were charged to do. Look at verse 30. And this one, we're just going to do, I think, one sentence. One, yeah. Verse 30. This is one of the things, the rules and the statutes that they went ahead and recommitted to. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Why is he saying that? What is going on here? They were charged not to mix their bloodlines. It's not really an issue for us today, is it? I mean, probably the only issue I could say is really pertinent to this type is if we were to marry an unbeliever as a believer. That would, we would be, in, in a sorts, mixing bloodlines. But besides that, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter what country the person is that you marry, right? Where they come from. So why is this important for us? Because the concern for them was polluting a nation, bringing pollutants into a nation. How does that happen? By bringing it into the families that make up a nation. How does that happen? By mixing bloodlines in the marriage. Right? So this is how it would work. You'd have a guy, he's got three sons, they're in Jerusalem. But listen, Jerusalem's a mess, isn't it? I mean, for 141 years, it's not even really a city, I guess you could say. And everyone in there is just poor. So what happens? This guy says, I need three brides. If I go to this country over here and get three women from that country, it will bring money to us. It's financially, it's advantageous for us to marry and mix bloodlines. But are you supposed to do that? I thought, I thought God said not to do that. Well, I know, but it, a little obvious, God's not here. 141 years in, raise your hand if you've seen God. No one's raising their hands. Hey, we're boots on the ground. We're, we've got our hands on what's going on. We know what's going on. We're, we're going to marry other tribes. We're going to bring in other daughters and we're going to give our daughters so that we can survive. That's what's happening. This passage for us is not so much about marriages. It's not. It's about trust. Who do you trust? Where do you trust when your own knowledge and ideas collide with God's knowledge and plan and ideas of how things should happen. A lot of times, our judgment and our assessments 
our opinion of an issue, a decision, will trump his. Because like them, we think, I'm boots on the ground. I'm seeing what's going on. I'm in touch with what's going on. I'm assessing this correctly. My judgment is better than anyone's judgment, even God's. I mean, after all, part of us, we're part, that, that's just how, we're, that's how we come out of the womb. That's what Adam did. I'm going to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? Is this because he needed to know good and evil? No, God was going to teach him the difference between good and evil. He would have always known that. He would have always had that knowledge, but he wanted it his way, served up his way, done on his schedule, because he was boots on the ground. He could see everything. And God, his judgment just wasn't as important. That's what we see happening. God is far off. He's outdated. He's out of touch. I mean, after all, we have iPads now, right? And we're talking about talking about putting people on Mars. God doesn't get that stuff. I mean, this is a God talking to ignorant people back in the Old Testament, living in tents. Look, we're in a complex society now, right? God doesn't understand the things that we deal with. We can make up our own laws here and there, right? We do this. Think about where you do that. Think about where your judgment trumps God's judgment, your version of what the bloodlines would be. Jeremy preached on this a few months ago. Some, some uh, theologians would call this chronological snobbery, where we think that as time progresses and we progress and our understanding progresses, we, we actually outpace God. And so his judgments of old, they're really just for old. So when you get into some things, you'll get into things like evolution or macroevolution, where man comes from an ancient primate or primate ancestor, right? Luke, come on, science. I mean, look at science now. We're like cloning things, you know? I mean, it's pretty big. I mean, don't you think that this trumps what... I mean, look what we're doing. God's not hearing this. It's a market cassette recorder. So, I've noticed something. I read this book the other day. I wanted to read this excerpt for you guys. Listen, this book is great. If you struggle with peer... There's probably one of you in here, so listen. If you struggle with peer pressure or codependency or fear of man, right? There's this book called When People Are Big and God Is Small, written by Ed Welch. Fantastic book to get. Run, don't walk, and buy it. All right, it's a very good book. I took this out of there when I was thinking about this. Feelings have no higher authority when God is absent. This is what the excerpt says. God told me to marry John, said Mary. She looked ecstatic, and the pastor was hoping to share her happiness. Please tell me a little bit about him. Well, he isn't a Christian yet. In fact, he refuses to even come to church, but I know he will someday, right? Mary, how do you know that you should marry him? How did God tell you? Pastor, I just feel it. I know it's right. The conversation is now over. Mary has just appealed to the highest authority, and that's her feelings. In two years, she will appeal to this authority again whenever she leaves the marriage because it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. Her feelings have trumped God's assessment, God's judgment, God's plan, because it feels like God is not there. Listen, we're called to be a radical people. It's just a fact. A radical people that make up a radical culture that are radically different than the other cultures around us, right? The reason we're radically different is because of the king we serve. I'm speaking very generally now. The king we serve has a very different way of doing things, right? The kingdom he leads is very different than the other kingdoms. If we stop 
doing, the things that our king does, and we stop judging the way our king judges, we start to lose the look of our own citizenship. We start to look like the kingdoms that surround us. In our language, we start to look like the world instead of the world we were rescued out of. Let me race through this. I'm going to go to Nehemiah 10.31. So go to the very next verse. And, alright, this is what it says. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Goodness gracious, what does that mean? They don't just... It wasn't put before them to just trust the plan of God. It was also put before them to trust the rest of God. They were supposed to rest and depend on God with how they exercised the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath. So the Sabbath it echoes God's rest in creation. It was a time where they would basically cease all work to echo and image what God has done. Something very beautiful. It's quarantine time. You can think of it that way. Set apart time for a set apart people to worship a set apart God. It was law for them. It was covenant for them. Right? Where they can just in one day a week, they can just cease all activity and celebrate the grace that God has shown them, celebrate what God is doing among them, Rest in the understanding that He will take care of where they stopped. All of this. It replenished their soul. Think of it that way. It's the replenisher of their soul. But what's this thing about the land every seven years? Every seven years they would let the land lie fallow. Fallow just means a season where there's no sowing, plowing, harvesting. The field just grows what it grows. Right? Black-eyed peas, lettuce, bacon, whatever. Whatever comes out of the ground, comes out of the ground. And then it was like a community garden. So people would just come and pick, and it's like, hey, I'm going to take some of that. And they take it, and they just walk off, and no one would say anything. It's the fallow year, the Sabbath year, every seven years. And what that would do is not replenish their soul, it would replenish the soil. You see how that works? God has a plan for replenishing, and it works within the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is not part of our covenant today. But, listen, God did not come to revoke the Sabbath. He didn't come and say, like this commandment, always have liked that one, kind of partial to this one. The Sabbath, yeah, I don't know. No. Jesus became our Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. I'm going to explain. It's not so much the day that you worship on. It's the person you worship. Rest for us is no longer a day. Rest for us is a person. In Jesus Christ. Rest is a person. Now, the meaning of this for you and the meaning of this for me is a little bit bigger than a day of rest. It's a posture of trust. Are you trusting God to work where you stop? Are you trusting God to relinquish your hand, rest, and celebrate, recount, reflect on the grace He has shown you? Are you doing that? Because listen, we're not talking about a a strict day. We're talking about a strict principle. A principle. Even though we don't celebrate a Sabbath day strictly, the principle should be exercised. Listen, I know a guy, he he gets this principle. He kills it like three weeks at a time. 21 days, he's laying down some nasty hours. Just boom, boom, boom. You're not going to get him. But on that fourth week... Sabbath time, man. Four days he takes off. Three days he's working around the house. He understands the principle. 
Some of you cannot honor one day a week. Some of you could be one day every three weeks. Some of it's just, some of you have a hard time just having fallow moments, don't you? I'm one of these guys. I have a hard time just shutting down and just being fallow. Sounds weird, doesn't it? It's because I don't trust God. I want to be in control. This is the diagnosis. If you're like me, that's what the deal is. You don't like to depend on anybody. You want to be in control. You don't want to stop. You hate stopping. I hate stopping. You know why? I don't like really what comes to my mind when I stop. Whenever I stop my activity and the to-do list stops rolling, that fallow moment, not real crazy and comfortable with what's coming up into my mind. As I recount God's grace, He's leading me to apply His gospel and His grace to the very things that come up. But it makes me feel out of control. God just brings all kinds of thoughts out of this fallow soil of my heart. Luke, do you realize that this is going on in your life? Luke, you're seeing things this way a certain way. I want to encourage you on that. God's working on me from different directions. But it's happening in a fallow season. So... I know I'm not finishing these thoughts. I'm doing that on purpose. I want to go to Nehemiah 10.31 now. Or 10.32. So, that's one more verse. And we're going to finish the chapter off. And this is how it goes. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel. I have no idea what that, how much that is. For the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the food offering to bring into the, or the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits that's a very important phrase right there of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn there it is again of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law And the firstborn of our herds and of our flock to bring the first of our dough. That's the third time it's mentioned, or the third category. And our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns when we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe to the tithe of our house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Now hear this. This is important. We will not neglect the house of our God. They were called to take emphatic and very generous care of the house of God. The term that keeps coming up is first fruits, firstborn. First of, first grain. That's a phrase of priority. It's a practical phrase of priority. First fruits. What it says is is nothing gets in the way. This is important. This is important and nothing stands in the way of this. 
I don't know what that means for the different things. If the first fruits were just better all the time, or the first calf coming out was better, but it was a statement of priority. I think sometimes it might have been. Why, why were they neglecting God's house to begin with? I would contend that it's probably the same reason we do, right? Because we're attached to the money and using it to finance the idols that grapple for the throne room of our heart, right? What do you mean, Luke? I mean, we use the currency of the world to finance idols, security, comfort, identity. And these idols, they dictate our actions, and we obey, right? And they're always hungry. This is called idol worship. I'm going to explain a little bit more, because there's a little bit of an idol worshiper in all of us. There is. We, we don't like to say that. We don't like to admit that. But think about it. Think about writing a big check. Don't even think about writing it to me. A missionary. I don't know. Whoever. You'll write it, and there'll be a tug, won't there? A tug. That it might be too much. Isn't it there? Where did that come from? Where did that tug come from? It comes from an idol trying to convince you that it's going to abandon you if you do do that. Because you're using its currency as well. You see, we don't worship money. We worship what money gets us. That's how that works. Listen, if you write that check, if you do, then you won't be able to sock it away for retirement. You will be poor on the streets. Is that what you want? That's what's going to happen. You know? And we listen and we go, Oh, I don't want that. I want to live on the streets. My goodness. You know? Maybe I shouldn't write this. Security. Security is a hungry idol, isn't it? What about identity? If you write that check, can't get those shoes, can't get the uh, neon lights under the mini truck, can't get all the things that the people respond to, right? You can't buy those things. People will look at you a different way altogether, and that's not what you want. You see, we use the currency of this world to purchase the loyalty of our idols. Think about it in that way. That's in actuality how it really is. It's amazing when you think about it. Because what they do is they say Jesus is not enough, these idols. The cross is not enough. God is simply not big enough. But we are. We are. Send money our way, we will give you what you want. We'll give you identity. But look, we already have identity in Christ. Agreed. But you know and I know, that's not the identity that the world really values. That's the identity you want. And your idol knows that too. Right? And so, this is why... 9% of the American church is faithfully generous in giving to their church. 9% of the American church. That's a generous number. Some say it's as slow as 6. That means there's 91 to 94% of the American church that does not give generously, faithfully, sacrificially, and joyfully to their church. Why? It's a lot of idols convincing a lot of people that they will abandon them the second that they're faithful to God. So we abandon our first fruits and trust in God with our supply, just like they did. That's where this comes from. So, let me just say, God is asking us, just like He was asking them, to trust in His plan, to trust in all of His provision, to trust in rest, right? That's what He's asking. Let me just say, I'm going to give you some real bad news, but I want you to hear me out. We can't do this. We can't do it. We can't. We're already being crushed under the weight of the demands of this covenant. We can't do it. I mean, we're, we're rebels at heart anyway, but we're incredibly good at breaking promises. We're promise breakers. We don't even stand a chance. I mean, think about it. You, you're going to try, listen, 
you're going to try to uh, value God's judgment and His assessment on typical things. Like, well, we said homosexual marriage, same-sex marriage, right? You're going to go, you know what? God's right. God's right, that's the way it is, until it's your brother that's gay. Until it's your sister or your neighbor. Then you're going to make an exception. Why are you going to do that? Because your boot's on the ground and you see it. You understand what you don't even think God understands, right? It will happen to you. You will do that. It might not be just same-sex marriage. It might be something that God has said yes or no to. And you'll take a little off the edge. You'll do it. We all do it. We're, we're rebels, like I said. You will say to your wife, to your family, to your husband, to your friends, I'm going to start taking some time off and really segregate and quarantine my time where God can speak to me. But then you won't do it. You'll do it for a week or two, and then you're going to fail sometimes. Hopefully not. I'm just telling you how hard it is. There will be failure in store for you, right? Some of you today, listen, anytime I even, I'm a pastor, I know this. Anytime I even talk about money, I could just say the word money, and people get nervous, right? They just do. You got nervous. Some of you were squirming as I said it. Not that I can see it, but I know I can see it, right? You're squirming. And you'll say to yourself, those days are over. From now on, from now on, man, I'm tithing. I'm going to give a third of a shekel, whatever that means. I'm going to figure it out, do the math. And you're going to do that. But let me tell you, you're going to fail at it. You're going to try really hard, but then you're going to fail at it. There'll be one month where an idol is going to scream at you and threaten to abandon you. And you're going to believe that and you're going to give in. It will happen. It's in all of us. We are broken. So fast to make a covenant and so very, very fast to break it, aren't we? Man. This is what Deuteronomy 27 says. Can you put that up there? Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. That is us, folks. We are curse deservers. This is the bad news. We are curse deservers. I mean, this impossible law just shows us the need, the gaping need we have for a very radical remedy to occur for us. And this is Jesus. Because Jesus Christ became our covenant curse. Our verse 29, because we obligated ourselves to a curse we can't pay for, he obligated himself to a curse he didn't deserve. He became our covenant curse. He stepped into it, even though it was aimed at you. This is how big and how awesome God is. Hear this. God makes a covenant, and God keeps His very own covenant. God makes a promise. We can't keep it. He keeps His own promise. God requires a debt. He pays His own debt. God wants to deliver a punishment. Takes His own punishment. I mean, are you catching how big this is? God is a covenant maker, and He's a covenant keeper. And He does it through His Son, a covenant curse for you and for me. But Luke, I don't like how you say Jesus is a curse. I don't like how you say that. Listen, Jesus is not a curse, but He became one for us. Make no mistake. This is what it says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, we are going to be people who will never taste the curse. But we will also be people, like it says in verse 39, who will not neglect our role. We will be people who will not taste the curse, but we will be people who will obey, who will not neglect. Now, we don't obey because it might 
stave the curse off more or bring us more blessing. We obey because the blessing has already come and death has been staved off. Death has lost its sting for you and me. We obey from a very much different paradigm than we did earlier when we said, if I work enough, God might be pleased and increase my blessing. Now, God knows, you understand, this is what the gospel is. Your performance is so bad that even in your good deeds, you've done enough bad things to condemn you to hell. Even in your good deeds. And God knows this. And so He gives someone very perfect, in fact, Himself, coming, taking on skin, looking like you and sounding like you, but certainly not acting like you or me, living a perfect life, dying a very perfect death, being raised again, and going to the right hand of God. And He does this for the very, very express reason of giving you and me a freedom to defeat the sin, to live above the sin, to have communion with His Father, to glorify Him and enjoy Him for the rest of our life. Our obedience looks different than the world's. It does. So the gospel for you is that you can freely obey God, freely obey God without the curse hanging over your head because it's lost its sting for you. You can develop biblical giving with a diff- not, not because you don't want God to be mad at you and take away your money. You can be good biblical givers of money because God, because Christ, made himself poor so that you would live in abundance. 2 Corinthians. Right? You could practice the Sabbath and the rest perfectly in total obedience knowing that Jesus Christ became our Sabbath because for the wages of sin are death. And you've worked your whole life trying to prove yourself to God, trying to prove that you can be with God. And that's been work, 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 work. And Jesus says, I'm the Sabbath right here. You can rest and retreat in me. I am the way to God. You see how that works? Totally different way. You can obey without the level of the curse over your head. Listen. I'm going to be honest. You're never going to obey God better because I do a good job as a pastor of giving you a well-developed, quippy little list of how-tos. There are times for that. I, I would like to teach on the Sabbath. I mean, Tim Keller's got some great stuff that I'm going to put on the website. I'll link to it. That He talks about functional Sabbaths, functional rests for us as people where we can be fellow. I thought it was brilliant. I can do that, and I can send you a list and send you right out the door, and you can be fine. But it won't compel you to change. Only seeing how big God is, how big and deep your sin is, and how powerful His grace is. That is the only way there's ever going to be change affected in you. Work out the details later. The goal is for you to see how huge Jesus is. I'm going to finish with this story. There is a story, because God knew this was coming the whole time, right? The cross wasn't accidental. In Romans, no, forgive me, Numbers 21. You don't have to put it up there. Don't put it up yet. In, in Numbers 21, this is the part of the story where Moses is tromping around through the wilderness with all these donkeys, right? Because they're not obeying God. They're speaking against God. They're just being turkeys the whole time. They're doing exactly what they said they would not do, right? So God says, that's it, judgment. Blammo, fiery serpents. I'm bringing fiery serpents, right? Now, fiery serpents, the word fiery, could either mean that there was red on the snake, which I vote for that one. I hope that was the case. Or their bites felt like fire, not so terrific, right? Or they had wings on them, even less terrific, right? I think Garrett Meek might be the only one in here that would be excited about snakes with wings on them, right? (laughs) I'm running for cover. I don't even want to see a snake. I don't care what color it is. I definitely don't want it to feel like fire or fly around, but this is what happens. In verse 6 of Numbers 21, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. You can put it up there now. I'm sorry, buddy. 
And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now this is a crazy story. If you just think about how crazy this is. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, now get this, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. That word sees in the Hebrew means look upon with a level of trust in your heart. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What? I mean, is that... Think about that. How crazy that is. Think about what's going on. I mean, take yourself out of just reading this in the 21st century and think about what that must have looked like. People screaming. People writhing, foaming at the mouth. Scared they're going to die. Just lost your wife. Lost your best buddy. They're all dying. Everyone around you is dying from snake bites. Snakes are everywhere. Pain. Retching. Screaming. And someone is very quickly making a bronze snake. You know? Fast. They're like, everyone leave that guy alone. <laughs> he's making the So he's banging it on a pole, lifts the pole in the middle of camp, and if you just looked at that thing, you were healed. Crazy. You're just healed. Why is it in the Bible? John 3. That's what Jesus says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is the perfected, true and better version of a serpent on a pole. That's why that's in the Bible. It was foreshadowing the whole time what Christ would become for you and for me. Jesus became the very thing that we were to make us the very thing that He was. Think about that. Right? For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But Luke, why, why a snake on the pole? Because in God in Genesis 3 said, Cursed are you serpent above all the livestock. It was the most prolific symbol of curse that could be conceived of. And that's what Jesus became for you and for me. For you and for me. So now when our pole is lifted, with our curse being exhausted upon on that cross, right? For you looking at it, that bite, that serpent's bite, has been healed. And death for you has lost its sting. So yes, we obey. We obey big. We should be good at obedience. We should have good performance in behavior. We should. But we obey as people who have already looked at a pole that has already been our remedy. Not as people trying to get around to look at a pole, hoping that the pole won't let them down. Hoping that 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 snake bite really will go away. Maybe I can get extra healed. Right? Maybe if I obey a little bit better, the snake bite won't come back. You've already been healed. You've already been healed. So now some of you have been healed by the curse's effect. Snake bite, you can say that. You've already been healed, right? But you still choose to be independent. You still choose to not trust. You still choose to take control of your own life in the different areas that we've already talked about, right? So God would have you today repent and acknowledge two things. One is that you're going to break your best promises because you're a promise breaker. Not a promise keeper, not a promise... You're a promise breaker. That's who we are. You have to know that. And then the second thing is that He keeps His promise. And He kept it in Christ. 
You have to know that. Some of you, you have snake bites now. And the pole is being lifted. And you can't just look and cognitively say, Jesus is God, I get that. You have to... You have to, in your gut, believe it. You have to say, you know what? I repent. This is how it sounded like for me whenever I was that guy with a big snake bite running from meeting to meeting to meeting. And finally, when the pole was lifted, I look and I go, oh my gosh, I'm so tired of just serving myself. I'm so tired of letting my idols drag me through the mud and dictate to me all the time. I'm so tired of being the center of my own little universe. I'm so, I'm so tired of not denying my flesh anything that it wants. I'm so tired of thinking I've got all the answers. I'm so tired of it, of leading myself. Christ will be my king. I will repent. I will leave it all. I will follow him. That's what it means to look at the pole. Some of you need to do that because let me tell you, not to freak you out, and I don't care what you call me later on, if you walk out of here with that snake bite still intact, if you walk out of here and you have not cried out to the king on a better cross, lifted on a better pole for a better people, if you've not done that and you die under those terms, you will go to hell. You will spend an eternity without God. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. Some of you truly need to give room in your heart and cry out to God instead of calling yourself God. Some of you really need to do that. Um, It feels hateful to say that. I know it might even sound like I'm being a hateful person. And he told people they're going to hell. Listen, for some of you, you need to hear that because you've always wondered. You've always wondered if that was the case for you. You were never quite sure why everyone else could live and be so happy and joyful, but you never could. Let me tell you, you might need to look at the cross raised up and cry out to a king bigger than you, okay?